because you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host. Extremely gracious and grateful today. I am going to talk a little bit before I introduce this next guest. I am going to speak about mental illness, as I often do. This conversation kind of went there as well. Um, I have, I'm bipolar, as I've talked about a billion times, maybe on this uh, show so far. And I understand mental illness a lot better because I've had it, have it, manage it, and manage for a long time. Thank God. Thanks for lithium and thanks for therapy and thanks for all kinds of things. It's really uh, hopefully under control at least. So I understand that world. Uh, I've had clinical depression all my life, so much mental illness in my life, uh, which affects others around you at any rate. I've, um, I've been working on it for a long time. I'm proud of myself. Um, and it's maybe understand just how people don't understand mental illness. It's unbelievable to me. And I understand it now in a way because when somebody has, let's say they have cancer and they have a lesion on their arm and you can point to the lesion, you can say, oh, I see you have cancer. So now I'm going to get mad at the cancer. I'm not going to get mad at the lesion. It's not a lesion's fault that I see on your arm. It is the cancer's fault. However, mental illness, when you think about it, the lesion is inside the skull. So nobody can see it. So they don't think it's real. So they get mad at the symptoms, a.k.a. the lesion. And those symptoms are depressed and being tired and not wanting to get out of bed. So what some people will say is, get out of bed. What's wrong with you, loser? And they're getting mad at the symptom, a.k.a. the lesion itself, that they don't know there is a disease in there in the first place, or they really don't believe it. But the bigger problem comes, if you ask me, that if you don't know that you have a disease and you start believing all the bullshit that people tell you about your symptoms... And you think they must be right because they're telling me I'm lazy, that I'm hearing things when you actually may really be. So obviously this is a giant passion for me. And this uh, conversation with uh, Melina Saval is why I bring this up because, again, an amazing interview. <laughs> it's like every single one has so much richness to it for me. So Melina is the feature editor at Variety. And Variety Magazine, for those of you who don't know, is a legendary legendary magazine online, the whole deal within the Hollywood uh, industry. And, um, but we didn't really talk much about that stuff because I wanted to find out more about her. Now, in addition to that, she's been on NPR and P PBS and CBS radio, and she's just a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she had a couple of books that I love talking about. One was about the secret lives of boys. And it's called Inside the Raw Emotional Male, a World of Male Teens. And she interviewed boys about 15 or so different interview. And it's just amazing what the themes came out of it. And it was a really great book. Um, one was called Jewish Summer Camp Mafia. That is a, uh, a fiction book about uh, the experiences of being at summer camp and a religious summer camp. This one, a, a Jewish one in the Poconos. I went to Christian summer camp when I was a kid. So we had a fun time talking about that odd world. Um, we really did get into Footloose with the soundtrack for some reason, because she likes it. I saw it in my research. And I actually ended up singing the Mike Reno part to the Ann Wilson duet of Almost Paradise. Mike Wilson being from Leverpoy and Ann Wilson being from Heart. They did a song together. It was a duet on the Footloose soundtrack, a film from 1984 featuring dancing and church for some reason. That was a hoot. Who gets to do that? Who gets to sing Leverboy to a random person? I win. Not only that, though, we did end up talking about mental health. And she's uh, she wrote this great article about this thing called the Mental Health Storytelling Coalition down in Hollywood. And the idea is just to normalize the depiction of mental illness in media and centering the stories really on the millions of adolescents who cope with clinical depression. It's just not represented that well at all. And I think we all know this. It's certainly not where it needs to be. We also talked about Al-Anon. It was an amazing conversation. Because I'm also in the recovery community on that end of things, uh, on the AA side. I don't care. I'll say it to anybody. And, and she did a lot of work on herself through Al-Anon, which is another thing that kind of helps with families of addiction. And we talked about the power of community and the power of peer groups and the power of everything. So it was amazing. Holy crap, this lady's fantastic and super smart. So that's all I got. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this as always, as I did making it, because I got to sing almost paradise like somebody who's amazing. Come on. It was a great day. Um, and uh, yeah, go enjoy yourself. Get foot loose, folks. Listen to Kenny Loggins and listen to the Top Gun theme song, too. Danger Zone. I'm out of my mind. <laughs> Gal. Well, hello once again. Hey, Dazzle Throng of the Inspired Mind audience. I have the incredible 
incredible, wonderful fortune to speak to the lovely and talented Melina Saval. Is it Saval or Saval? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, it's actually both. I say Saval, but I have family members that say Saval. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce my last name, and apparently nobody in my family really does either. It, it, it's, it was truncated from a longer name, uh, Savlansky. So, but yeah, I do have family members that say Saval, family members that say Saval, and family members that say Saval. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, make, make of that what you will. Okay. Nobody knows how to pronounce my name. So, <laughs> I, anyways, great. Any I, either first or last name, no one knows how to how to get my name right. So you you nailed the first. You got my first name completely right, and yeah. you got my last name also correct from the perspective of myriad relatives. So I think we're good. Good. Okay. Good. First question out of the gate. Done. I'm done. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the way I like to do these things, and I have a lot of questions to ask you, but I always like to start off with the following. Questions, same question for everybody. And that is very simply, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you? Was it a song or a book or a TV show, a movie? Don't. Oh, wow. Well, how young? I oh. mean, literally, I, I I have a memory. I feel like I have a steel trap memory. Like I have a memory of the, I have like the memory of an elephant. I, I have really good long-term memory. I think as we all get older, our short-term memory kind of, uh, you know, dissipates. But so I remember things as far back as I was two, but in terms of like pop culture, you mean like something that I saw in the art world maybe, or um, yeah, like, I mean, I'll just, I'll just name a few things. Yeah. I remember, I remember listening to Andy Gibb yeah. a lot. I loved Andy Gibb. Yep. I can remember going to, um, see on golden pond oh. with my mom and i think my brother maybe and because i i actually remember we were sitting in a row and there were people that were speaking rather loudly like behind us or maybe in front of us and i remember moving my mom said let's move so like halfway through the the film we moved seats but i specifically remember i remember very vividly i mean of course i remember the the famous jane fonda backflip scene uh-huh from 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 that movie but i remember watching the lake or the pond was it actually a lake or a pond i don't know but it was very golden was. and i remember the sun kind of the sun speckled little waves there was a scene of ducks i don't know why that always stuck with me i love that movie um but you know prior to that i remember um i think you said inspiring but i have a i have a very I have a very vivid uh, memory of falling asleep during the first Star Wars. And I have memories of old Woody Allen movies, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, you know, this was back in the days where like, you know, if you didn't have a babysitter, you were taking your kids to see, you know, like Manhattan and Annie Hall, you know, Um, if you were two or one or whatever it was. So um, those are all memories. I'm sure that there's many others, there's probably a lot others, but those those come to mind. Okay. Then the follow-up is always, what about that memory or maybe the collection of all those memories got you to where you are now in the entertainment world? Is there a through line or no? I don't really think that – I think the trajectory of my career has not been a straight line. I don't really think it is for many people, but I will say that – so the Golden Pond memory – I remember, I don't know why, I just thought it was so beautiful. And I mean, obviously it's, you know, some of the greatest performances mm-hmm. I think all three of those those actors had ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Henry, Catherine, Jane. Um, and I remember later being inspired to kind of write some things, uh, stories. Uh, I had like a script in my head that all kind of revolved around a pond with that same sort of sunlight. Um, I it's, it's the Woody Allen thing is, is a weird complicated issue as we all know. Of course. So, but, but like, I also firmly believe that, you know, we can't hold ourselves responsible for feelings about art that we had prior to knowledge that we now have. Mm -hmm. 
um, around certain issues. And, and yeah, like Woody Allen was a huge part of my growth as a writer and an inspiration to me as I, you know, started writing scripts and decided to, I went to Cornell, I studied English, um, literature, but I went and then got my master's, my MFA from USC. And I mean, I, I would be dishonest if I didn't say that Alan's work was a big inspiration to me on that period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, am an East Coast Jew. Um, right. And I, you know, related so much to so many of the tropes and themes that were in so many of his earlier films, um, especially like the, you know, Manhattan, um, Hannah and her sisters is one of my favorite films of all time. So I, I'd met him. I mean, it, it's, it, wow. I, I feel even weird talking about it, but like I was lately, I've been having conversations with people about, you know, can we even discuss it? And, and I, and I think the general consensus is, look, it was a part of our lives. It is a part of our lives. You can't ignore it and pretend it was never there. And it was there. And um, they were hugely influential character driven films about relationships between family members and, and whatnot and um, love interest and, and, and just, it, it inhabited a world that I related to and understood and maybe romanticized out of proportion in some ways. But um, so I, I remember I, I had a, a boyfriend that I'd met in Israel when we were both studying there in uh, at Hebrew university in Jerusalem from 93 to 94. And then continued to date. I think it was my 21st birthday. We, he took me to New York. We met in New York city and we saw Woody Allen playing um, clarinet with his band at, you know, at, it was called Michael's, right. Or Michael's. And, and I remember meeting, meeting Woody and, and talking to him about, you know, I want to be a filmmaker and yeah, that was all very inspirational to me at that time. I mean, it just was, you know, it was a different universe. I mean, we're talking 90, you know, I don't know, 90, uh, what, 95, 96 at that point. So it was a different world. Um, you know, I don't know. I think everything, there's a great Yiddish proverb that is, um, experience is the accumulation of our mistakes. And I think Hmm. everything I've done in life or experienced, even in the pop cultural world, good or bad or whatever, somehow, uh, you know, wedges its way into, um, my process as a writer you know, most of, of it does. So I don't know if that answered your question. No, but. no, absolutely. Well, any answer you give is the answer, obviously. But yeah. what I got to go back for a heartbeat on on Woody Allen. The most, for me personally, the most relatable film that he did that like nobody, not a lot of people know, Zelig. Zelig yeah. is just, for, the, for those of you who don't know in the uh, listening audience out there, Zelig is this film that he did. It's a fake documentary that he did where he slipped himself in in this 1920s uh, footage as a human chameleon. And it was kind of a gag that he would stand next to, let's say, an American Indian. And then all in seconds later, he would look like an American Indian or stand next to a black man and he'd look like a black man. And the whole concept was that he didn't know who he was necessarily on the inside. So he had to have the physical manifestations of whomever he was standing next to to be liked. And... As a kid, as a teen, as a fucking adult middle-aged guy, I still look at that movie and I'm like, that's it. That's me sometimes. Yeah. And and it, what's interesting, and, and I didn't post it because God forbid today you post something that somebody finds offensive. <laughs> it can ruin your entire livelihood. Yeah. But I was thinking the other day, um, I do a lot of writing um, for Variety and, and for other places as well where I freelance about you know, the experience of being, you know, Jewish in America. And I, that scene in Annie Hall, the classic scene wherein Grammy Hall looks at Woody Allen's character, Alvy Singer, and imagines him as a Hasidic Jew with payas (laughs) and a black hat and whatnot. That's right. You know, because he's, he's, he's sitting amongst this, you know, they're in Chippewa Falls. And I thought, you know, I try to think of other examples that really (laughs) kind of like, get to the core kind of 
sense of what it sort of feels like in some ways to be Jewish in America right now with the with the um, the spiking rates of anti-Semitism and here global wide and, and in the States. And for some reason, that that clip still resonates to me better than so many others. It really does feel that way sometimes. It's like you're Jewish and you're in a room with these other people that, um, you know, ca- you know, have these preconceived you know, cultural and uh, ster- and religious stereotypes. And so I still in my head think about those, some of those scenes and how brilliantly they captured the essence of what it, you know, the, the condition of post-Holocaust American Jewry, but, you know, we're not really in a position wherein we're allowed to kind of talk about it openly. This is, this is the first time I've, d- I've done it actually on a, on a platform, but look, I mean, I just have to say there's, there, there, and there was a great article, um, called What Do We Do with the Art of Monstrous Men? And I want to say it was in the Paris Review, but it might have been in Harper's and God, I forget the writer and I feel badly about that. But it was also an excellent piece about what do we do with this art? Like, what do, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what do we do with Merchant of Venice? What do we do with Shakespeare? Yeah. Who, you know, clear, there were so many anti-Semitic tropes. What do we do with Roald Dahl? You know, who, you know, the Nazi affiliations, you know, like what, what do we do with all of that stuff? Um, and I think it's important we talk about it because pretending it just doesn't exist and pretending we can just cancel everything that happened prior to the current day is, is, is not an effective way to, push the proverbial needle forward in our culture. You know, it's literally as if, you know, you were to say, look, what happened is something really bad. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like if someone died or if someone, God forbid, was murdered or anything or anything you've experienced, pretending it didn't happen and moving on. And we all know that that's not a way toward healing or growth. And the same goes for things that have happened in Hollywood and in pop culture and in literature and in the world of, you know, publishing and and filmmaking. And I'm kind of going on a tangent, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. No, this is totally relevant. In fact, I was having this, I was having the same conversation with somebody a couple of days ago. She's a TV producer. And we kind of came to the, the idea, or at least I believe that when those things are kind of excised out of the, of the culture, like some of those older, Thoughts. The problem with that is then you lose the vision of what they used to think, right? You you lose yeah. the you lose a whole context of that stuff, and I think that context is important. I'm not saying necessarily justifies what they were saying, but it yeah. nevertheless it it provides a context as a, as an historical document almost of what that kind of view was. And not only that, but what about like, you know, I'm always struggling with this. Does it mean that we should also negate the work of the wonderful actors and actresses that we, I mean, Michael Caine's performance, Max von Sydow's performance in Hannah and her sisters are two, I mean, Max von Sydow in that movie, when he gives that whole speech about, you know, if Jesus saw what was going on in his name, you know, right now he would never stop throwing up. I mean, what a work of brilliance, Yeah. you know? Um, I mean, my God, Mia Farrow. I mean, my gosh, I mean, one of my all time favorite actors, so natural. There's never a false beat in anything she's ever done. She is so natural and gorgeous and beautiful. I mean, just, I love, I could watch her for days, like just for days and weeks on end. So like, you know, I don't know the answer, but what do, what do we do with all that? You know, where does it go? Do we pretend it's not there? Do we not, you know, I mean, Barbara Hershey, I mean, you know, um, Diane Weist. I mean, look yep. at, there's so much amazing talent. Diane Keaton, obviously the writing, I, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, it's not an easy, it's a comp, I think it's a complicated issue. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think just pretending it was never there and it's not there. Um, that doesn't really get us anywhere. Right. And that's the age old thing about separating the art from the artist. Yeah. And it can be yeah. hard because yeah. there are some, I mean, you know, like for example, you're not going to find me at a Pink Floyd concert. And maybe someone say that's hypocritical, but like, I'm not going to go see Roger Waters perform when he's, you know, so um, flagrantly, you know, anti-Semitic and he has, you know, visuals of like a pig, Uh like literally it's like a Zionist, you know, like an anti-Zionist pig or whatever, whatever it is, like a pig with a Jewish star. Like, I'm not going to sit there through that, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, it just makes my blood curl. But so, 
I don't know. I guess on some level, we all have to make our choices about what feels comfortable and what doesn't. And and also at the same time, you know, I do feel very protective of people in that have been abused and hurt. You know, it's not like it takes away that either. People, artists, but I also think, you know, in a general state, uh, a general kind of way, you know, I think this idea that artists, like artists are not, like when you think of like a a well-balanced, emotionally, you know, like mature individual. Not not an artist. (laughs) Yeah, like what, 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 what was, where did this kind of even like this idea come that artists were like, not capable of doing bad things i mean it's bizarre it's so that too is i think the 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 craziest part it's like this idea that we sometimes hold these people to such a higher standard of of humanity when in fact you know it, it it makes absolutely no sense to assume that people working um as artists are not um challenged in some some areas emotionally or psychologically just like everyone else is too you know I mean everybody I just I think it's bizarre that we have these we have at the same time like we have these expectations of certain people to act perfect you know in in a perfect manner and do no wrong which Mm -hmm. is uh, you know you're setting yourself up for failure but at the same time we can see what's going on in our culture that we are allowing certain people to get away literally with murder so there's this weird dichotomy about canceling people that have maybe said the wrong thing and i'm not talking about woody allen here in this because i know that whatever happened was horrible and i'm you know i would never want to you know not acknowledge that pain experienced by so many people but i'm even just talking about like some people say the wrong thing and they're gone forever and meanwhile you know we're living in a society wherein we have somebody you know a former president who tried to you know, dismantle democracy oh, yeah. in the United States. And there's, he's still not yet in prison. So we're not, you know, it's different rules for different people. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how it's always been for quite some time. If you're a white guy and you're straight in America, sorry, I'll say it out loud. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask about this and this is, first of all, I love your writing. I really do. I was doing, I was reading a lot of your stuff and there was one thing I just got to call out, just just because you did this lovely little thing on Footloose soundtrack, okay? And oh my gosh, that's specifically so wait, wait, that's time a out. tiny little thing. I know, time out. This is the best part. So you you, you write uh, about lovesick girls crying over boys while Almost Paradise played in our summer camp cabin. And first of all, I just listened to that song again for the first time in like 30 fucking years. And it still holds in me. I can remember it like, like Mike Reno with like the headband and Ann Wilson with the big hair. Right. And there there was something so wonderful because I had that same experience. I don't necessarily know if he was in a summer camp cabin per se, but I definitely did that stuff. Yeah. But the thing that was so cool was just reading that one thing. It, the song immediately went back in my head. I can, I, I was singing it in my car, by the way, on the way over here. Oh, I love that. It's just such a wonderful song written by Eric Carmen, by the way. Found that I out. I loved Eric Carmen. Oh, come on. The Raz, wait, not the raspberries. He was, wait, was he the raspberries? Yeah, he's raspberries. Right? Yeah. God. Um, I mean, I'm thinking like all by myself. I even loved Hungry Eyes. I'll admit. Wow. Um, really? Okay. Hang on. I'm hang- I'm hanging up. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, no, I mean, well, come on. That was it was a dirt, it was a dirty dancing phase. Yeah, you're right. Um, but but yeah, raspberries, yeah. Oh, but it was just but it's such a lovely song. But it, it got me thinking about this this or kind of continued to think about I'm fascinated by sense memory versus event memory. Right? Yeah. Because event memory is just, you know, shit that happens. Sense memory Okay, never gonna sorry, but never gonna fall in love again is probably my favorite Eric Carmen song. Wow, good call on that one. That's a good one, right? Yeah. Carmen, my a good God. one. That, he, guy was a master. Yeah. And it's that, <laughs> it's, it's that sense memory. I'll say this real quick. I actually, I'm a caregiver on the side to this guy who's just a miracle of a human being. And uh, he's 43, and uh, but he, when he was 13, he got into a massive, massive car accident that demolished his entire body. I mean, to this day, he can't, he can barely walk. And his he's mentally about five or 10 years old. Um, happens to be the funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. He's like my like brother at this point, like shockingly funny, weirdly funny. Okay. But his memory is shot and his memory, his, his, his event memory is gone. Every 10 minutes I'm repeating stuff to him, you know, and 
but his sense memory can last years. It's interesting. So when I heard that or saw that almost paradise, suddenly the song pops into my head, the feeling of being in the cabin, whether or not I was actually in the cabin, but by force of suggestion, I could smell, almost smell the wood in the room by reading your words. Wow. Thank you. I, that's, I really love that. I, I could have written, I mean, that's like a whole chapter of like a memoir book at some point, but yeah, that, that song figured prominently into, into a summer camp. Month. Well, it did. And which leads me to uh, your books. We'll talk about some books. Uh, Jewish Summer Camp Mafia. Yeah. Let's go there. I, well, I, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, um, part, yeah, like loosely based on my experience as a camp counselor one summer at a camp in the Poconos. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I don't know how much you know about like the Jewish summer camp circuit, but so, I mean, it's different than it. So I didn't even, so where are you based? Are you in LA? Uh, Was in LA for a while, currently in San Jose to finish school. Okay. So you're in San Jose. So like in the East coast, I mean, I don't know. I was going to summer camp from the time that I was, I don't know, eight or maybe nine um, overnight camp. And when I was nine and you know, you went for like eight weeks, maybe you went for four weeks to start and then you went for eight weeks. And in California, it's a little different. Um, Some of the camps only go for three weeks or four weeks or whatever, but summer camp, Jewish summer camp was, um, you know, was some of the best summers of my life. And I made friendships there that I still maintain to this day. And I, at, I went to um, a couple of, of different camps. I, for one summer, I started off at Camp Yavna, which um, was like, it's actually not, I think it's non, I think it's technically non-denominational, but they had, like, we had Old Pond, um, Hebrew classes every day. Um, there was definitely Orthodox services. And I think you then had a choice. You could do an egalitarian service. It was kosher. And then I went to another camp called Camp Pembroke, which was an all-girls um Jewish summer camp, uh, also kosher, also like Shomer Shabbos. We had Shabbat services and whatnot. And um, I don't know. Those are just, you know, I think you get really close to people that you're sharing a bunk with for eight weeks out of, you know, the year. You know, you're with them 24-7. And so I was kind of inspired by that, those experiences. And then also when I was a counselor at, a, at another camp, um, in the Poconos to kind of write, you know, the, the idea kind of came from, you know, these camps can be very competitive, you know, like which tennis team is better, which swim team is better and whatnot. And also, I also, you know, I don't want to make this sound like a privileged kind of thing. Like I was lucky I was able to go, but also, I mean, I get inflation and whatnot, but summer camps back in the eighties, like compared to what they cost today, I don't even know how anybody affords them today but i don't know i mean i was able to go and um but they were not the price they are now mm-hmm. uh, i think even with inflation and whatnot but um yeah i don't know there's just i mean i i i didn't i wasn't prepared to talk about this and i could probably probably talk endlessly about so many core memories i mean i was just literally texting with um my friend uh uh, my one of my friends from summer camp she just texted me i mean i you know like we've we've known each other since we were like maybe 10 um so those friendships and memories really endure and um you know there's like a whole network of them and you know them by name and if you haven't gone to this one you know someone who has and they yeah. know someone who's gone to yours and um yeah, yeah. you know i thought i not to like over i don't know like not to overdo the ungolden pond reference but <laughs> i think for some Keep reason going. Keep going. Maybe, but maybe that's the reason, you know, like I went to these camps where there was like, you know, the lake, there was the lake, you swam uh-huh. in the lake, there's like uh-huh. yucky seaweed in the lake and there's mud and you don't know what's in the bottom. And, uh-huh. you know, you had docks like today, a lot of these camps, they have pools and there's no pools when we went, when I was going to these camps, it was like, you were in the lake, you were like, you know, like who knows what was down there, you know? And so I think lakes have always been something I really like I love lakes I love canoes I love 
just that whole kind of, I don't know, atmosphere and stuff. So um, all of that kind of, you know, I created kind of this camp and these composite characters that were, you know, loosely mm-hmm. based on things that I'd experienced and mm-hmm. put them into a book because, you know, the Jewish summer camp scene is definitely um, something I think that lends itself to um, great narrative description, but it's also pretty cinematic, you know? Uh, absolutely. I have two comments. Number one, keep doing the on Golden Ponds reference. I could talk about that movie the entire rest of the I, I could, like, literally. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I, I, it, for so, I mean, there's so many other movies, like, in that, you know, like, I could talk about Terms of Endearment forever. <laughs> I could talk about, you know, but on Golden Pond, I mean, Jones, like, I, I, I remember just, I mean, I was a kid when I saw that movie, and I was so struck by how beautiful that film was I just in the lighting, the golden lighting. Perfect. And, and like, I mean, my God, it was just beautiful. They don't make, we don't make films like that anymore. It was just a very special time. It would never get made by a studio. <laughs> it would never get made. It would be said it was too small or, you know, Netflix or, you know, whatever. I mean, but we, those movies sure. were shown in giant big screen format in theaters and they were packed. You may know? I also may I also do my my real quick my uh, Catherine Hepburn impression real quick? Do you mind? Yes, I'd love to hear. You ready? You're my knight in shining armor. <laughs> what a great scene! I haven't thought about the movie in thirty years. I think I saw it in the theaters when I was ten, and I've never seen it before, and I will never forget that. I, that's incredible, and it's interesting too because I do think that somewhere subconsciously, perhaps, that that movie influenced you to kind of have that summer camp experience, or at least you know have you. Somewhere in that book and perhaps other work that you have, I promise you on Golden Ponds in there. Guaranteed. Yeah. And I mean, God, now I'm thinking about the scene where Norman Henry Fonda's character, like he gets lost, right? Like he gets lost and he's experiencing kind of dementia and like that was just heartbreaking. And my gosh, the whole thing and just the fact that it was Jane and her dad. I mean, come on. It was exquisite. It's just, God, I love that movie so much. Let's get it back on the screen somehow. Um, so I'm going to move on because I really want to get to the meat of this thing. The whole show. I'm very excited. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I really want to talk about the secret lives of boys. And as I sort of mentioned to you in an email, I'm a, my whole shtick is collecting stories. I look at myself, and quite frankly, I look at you as Alan Lomax. Remember Alan Lomax, the guy back in the 30s and 40s? who collected- I mean, Sorry? vaguely. Right. So Alan Lomax was a guy who was hired by the government back in the 40s and 30s to go out to collect. He had this giant recorder and he'd go out to the middle of nowhere in these fields and he'd uh, record holler songs or work songs or slave songs or just in stories. It's all he would do for the Library of Congress. Right. He's paid by the government. It's an amazing thing. They realized all these stories were going to go away. We need to get them on record and take care of it. And that's, I think, what you've done with this with, with this book, in a sense. There's, yes. Very sweet. Thank well, there's you. also, I mentioned Studs Terkel, I think, in an interview with Studs Terkel. Yeah. Was, you know, he had that great book, Working. It was this legendary work where he elevated the common man into storytelling. And I think that's what you've done in your book. And I guess all I'll say before I stop rambling, because I do want to hear about this, is it's that connectivity that, it, you know, you were talking about also in the Jewish Summer Camp Mafia. What we're really talking about is connection. Because my big thing is we're in a pandemic of disconnection. No, no, no doubt. Yeah, when you're talking specifically about the Jewish summer camp mafia and you're talking about even collecting the stories of, of, of boys who were, as you know, as you mentioned in the book, an underserved, not a lot of people hear the boy stories. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. So kind of what inspired you to get that done? Um, well, let's see, like the origin story of that is at that time, I um, was kind of mentoring um, like a 15 year old, um, recovering methamphetamine addict that I met through, I was teaching like Hebrew school a little bit part-time, like on Sundays, which is like another story, but I lived in Israel. My, my Hebrew, which is a little rusty right now is really good back then. And a friend of mine was the principal of, um, the religious school at this synagogue in, in LA called Temple Israel of Hollywood. And, um, I'll give her a shout out. Her name is Laura Bramson Hyman. Whom, whom I also met at Camp Pembroke. So, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, at the time I was mostly freelance writing. I, let me think exactly what I was doing. I'd been writing movies for Disney and Touchstone for a while. And at that point, I think I was freelancing. I don't know, but like I had Sundays free and, you know, I, I was, at, I was at a point where I was like, yeah, it'd be cool to like 
give back to the community and teach, you know, just a couple of hours on a Sunday. And I did. And through that, I met, um, I think he was my TA at the time. And he was um, this kid who was a recovering methamphetamine addict who had an interest in writing. And so I kind of took him under my wing and, you know, we did kind of like, he showed me some of his writing and he was really talented. And I helped him, I think with, you know, a few things that he was working on, maybe articles or whatnot and stuff for school. And um, one night, if I'm remembering correctly, it was with he and I, and I think he was my, my now ex-husband. I think he was my fiance at the time. Yeah. It was my fiance at the time we went to see a play um and i remember the play and it was called coke free jap by mm. my friend fielding edlow mm. um and i forget why it was at in god it was in hollywood and i don't know i was invited to this play i think i was actually writing about it for i want to say the forward i think i was doing freelance for them at the time and i was writing about the play and i figured he'd like the play because huh. of the themes and and whatever and it was about had ish, um themes of recovery addiction and stuff like that and he was recovering and all this stuff so we ended up at this play and on the way to this play in the car i remember he came up with this term that he said that um he cre- he had this term he was like yeah i'm i'm, a, I'm an indie fuck He's like, I'm an indie fuck. That's like my group of kids. That's like what we call like the group of like, you know, my social circle. And I'm like, what the hell is an indie fuck? Like, is that like emo? Like, what is that? (laughs) And literally from that exchange and him telling me that one word grew a conversation about kind of the different cliques, you know, high school cliques among, you know, boys and what social divisions and it opened up this whole world and I was like what a cool story idea like just to kind of write something about what's happening in LA in high school with these boys like social settings who they are what kind of secrets you know then it became about secrets because we were also having conversations about what you know this particular kid like what was really going on in his life and then what his parents knew about and there was a difference between there was things that they knew you know, that, that he knew that they didn't. And so, you know, this idea of keeping secrets from parents kind of came and then I pitched it to the LA weekly. So this was like 2005. Hmm. Um, I think I pitched it and um, they were like, yeah, this sounds really cool. So I wrote like a 6,000 word cover story about teenage boys in Los Angeles. It was kind of like an anthropological analysis of teenage boyhood culture in LA huh. And then after that, I um, got a book agent and then sold it as a book um, to basic books in New York. I remember flying in and having all these meetings with different publishing houses and, you know, expanded it to the national level and was like, you know, I'm really interested in doing a book where I I talk to, you know, teenage boys um, and, and kind of attempt to debunk stereotypes and just kind of see what makes them tick and talk about ways in which they are being underserved and they are being stereotyped. And so I interviewed a bunch of different teenage boys from all walks of life, rich, poor, black, white, you know, teenage dads, um, you know, kids that were living, kids that were homeschooled, kids that lived in LA, New York, um, suburbs of, you know, Boston, a, a kid from Rhode Island, like uh-huh. middle America. And I had to weed out a bunch, but then I wound up, you know, with the, the 10 core chapters of the, of the boys that I included in the book and, um, you know, wrote stories about them and who they were. Um, and so, yeah, that's how that came about. It's just, it's so magical. Also, what's, what's interesting to me is that really the inspiration for the book came from service work. Right. Because you're helping this kid. Yeah. I mean, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it was just, I, I, yeah, I guess you're right. I never really thought of it, but yeah, he was a, I was a, I was his mentor, I guess, for a bit. Yeah. You were, you were doing what we should, you were doing what we are called to do. And many of us don't. And that is to be of service to each other. And I really think that's very commendable. Um, so here's, uh, and speaking of which, this is the, this is the fun part. I can't wait for this one too. So as I, as I noticed, you had, uh, three, not one, not two, but three SoCal journalism award nominations. 
And I really want to talk about the lizard brain article that you wrote. Okay. I, I read that. If if you don't mind talking about that, sure. I read that, and it was it just hits. It was so oh. beautiful what you had written, and specifically one thing I did have to just call out was, and and you were referring to your recovering alcoholic ex husband as one who would uh, sorry uh, ex husband as one who would as one would someone you would love him with any someone with any other type of disease with an attitude of boundless acceptance grace and compassion and the fact that you were able to notice and to call out the fact that it was a disease puts you head and shoulders in my opinion amongst so many other people who don't know that so i wanted to just tell you honestly that what you wrote it just spoke volumes to me thank you i mean look i'm not working a perfect program i mean you know we were talking earlier I've been in Al-Anon for, uh, let's see, I think, I, I, I think it's, it's, it'll be close to, it'll be 13 years in October and I'm far from recovered. I mean, I think, you know, people in the program, it's like some days you walk in and you feel like you're just, it's like your first day. Um, and you know, it also works if you work it and sometimes I don't work it at all. And then I find that things kind of fall apart pretty rapidly. And so I need to work it the program. Um, yeah, but what it's, you know, so many people just do not understand addiction. I mean, very smart, otherwise capable, you know, intelligent, successful people still just do not understand that disease, that alcoholism addiction is a a brain disease. They don't understand it. And they, and, and I think that even when sometimes they do, they still kind of only understand it in the abstract. They're like, oh, yeah, you say disease because, you know, problems come from it. And it's like, no, it no. legitimately changes your brain. There's yeah. dopamine levels involved. It literally is a disease. It is a brain disorder. Yep. Um, and people do not understand it. I mean, yeah. very few people do. I mean, I remember, I remember, my gosh, you know, you get one gets so many uh, interesting in quotation marks um, comments from people. I remember when, um, you know, and I want to be careful, not really talking that much about my ex. Cause it's, as we know, it's not my business, you know, it's not my business, but, but I will say that, like, I remember when, let's just say when after, um, God, it's hard to know. It, it is. It's actually hard to know. It's actually hard to know how to how to discuss this in a in a way. Like sometimes I discuss it freely, and then sometimes things are such that I realize is this not my place? But I've written about it. So, but you know, let's just say I knew a person who, when they got when they after they left rehab, um, I had other people come up to me and say, "Did it work? That's great that it worked. It worked." And even that was like, what are you talking about? It's not like you go and they flip a switch and right. suddenly you're better. Exactly. Like, that's not how that like, literally, that's not how it works. But the number of people who still kind of feel that addiction is a choice and addiction is really more about the substance than it is about the, per- like, you know, I, I hear this a lot too. Like, what was he addicted to? And it's like, then you have to explain, well, you know, his drug of choice was maybe, or her drug of, drug of choice was this or that, but it's not really about that because when that drug wasn't available, then you go yeah. to this, you know, yeah. a lot of people, it's more about like, like heroin is bad. It's like, yeah, it is. It has a potential to kill you. But if somebody is a heroin addict and heroin's not around, they're not cured. You right. can't cure it. You know, as we know, it's, it can be, you know, it's, it's a disease that can be arrested, but never cured. But the lack of um, understanding around addiction, I find it's weird. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm sufficiently jaded. I've worked in this, you know, in, as an entertainment journalist and, 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 you know, in Hollywood as a writer for many years. So I'm, I'm sufficiently jaded, but that actually endlessly, it just, it just, it, it never ceases to kind of amaze me the lack of um, understanding about, about addiction as a disease, especially in a world in which there's so much of it. Mm-hmm. We just, so many people have just no clue. No, no, they absolutely don't. And I'm glad that you picked up on the uh, neurodivergence, I guess, of yeah. really, of any mental illness or any disorder. I mean, my whole thing has been for, I've been saying this for a while, that when it comes to really any mental disorder, let's say you have cancer, right? And then you have a lesion on your arm and people can look at the lesion on the arm and say, oh, you have cancer. I see that you have cancer based on the lesion on your arm. 
right. and they get mad at the they don't get mad at the symptom they get mad at the disease of cancer problem is that when right. you have mental illness right the lesion is inside the skull so they can't see the lesion so you get mad at the symptoms because you don't know that there's a disease but the part yeah. the hardest part though harder and this i've had this personally myself if you don't know that you have a mental disorder then you take on the anger towards your symptoms and you think those are actually you right so people were yelling yeah. you're lazy you can't get out of bed wait no, I have MDD, I have major depressive disorder or whatever it is. But if you don't know that, then you take it on as a personal indictment and then that continues the cycle. Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, um, yeah, I'm thinking what I can add to that, but you know, you're, you're 100% right. It's, that's, that's literally all it is um, in my humble opinion. Uh, but I'm grateful that I get to talk to people like yourself uh, about this. And, you know, I help addicts in my work as a therapist now. And it's incredible to watch, to see, um, you know, sometimes people can change and sometimes they need more help, but whatever that looks like, um, it's an, it's an honor uh, to, to do those kinds of things. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's kind of like a shorthand, like, between like if you're in any sort of 12-step program or you have anybody in your life or a loved one or friend or relative that um suffers from the disease of addiction i think that like there's a shorthand between us where in a way it's like we understand things on a different level than people who who don't have experience in that um i i you know i say it i don't even say it in a joking manner like how anybody lives without a 12-step program is beyond me I don't it, get it. Every, everybody needs one. I mean, I, if, I, agree. I agree. Do a little 10 step there and figure out how you fucked up today. That's all. Yeah. Like, about. I mean, you know, from, from world leaders to, you know, anyone working in government to anybody leading, like the fact that, you know, everybody, everybody in DC needs, needs a meeting. Could I think you really imagine Donald Trump in a fucking meeting. I mean, he's just, I don't even, I'm <laughs> sorry. I shouldn't he, <laughs> people can he, you know what, in all fairness, once he's if he's in prison, then yes, let's ah, he can go to a meeting. That's, that's good with me. Yeah, I will stick with that. All right, I got one last question. I always like to ask at the end of this little shindig, and then we're going to wrap it up. As a creative, when you're writing, when you're writing a script, when you're writing a book, when do you know you're done? Oh my gosh! I mean, that's like the hardest question. I know. Um, Why is the last one? It's a, well, it depends because for my work at Variety, I'm on staff, right? We have deadlines. True. So it doesn't matter if I'm not happy with something. When it's due, it's due. And, and then it's published. And, you know, there are things that maybe I would have liked to have changed. But, you know, it's it's done. Huh? Um, if it's like I'm working on a, a, a book right now and I'm also working on developing Secret Lives of Boys as a TV series and oh. like – I don't know when either of those things are going to be done. And I don't know if when the drafts of both are done, I'm going to be happy with it. I mean, I've worked seven, eight years on certain projects. So mm. I, I actually think that you have to kind of have a reckoning, you know, like a self reckoning and just say, look, like at a certain point you have to turn it over because you've done as much with it as is healthy. <laughs> you know what I mean? At a yep. certain point. Like, I think it in Wonder Boys, you know, like it was just like the professor, the professor character and like in the film, Michael Douglas, like, yeah. what was he on? Like, you know, page like, you know, like 900 of like an opus. And it's like, yeah, yeah maybe you're never done. No. But at some point, I think um, you have to just decide that you've done as much with it as humanly possible at that moment in time and um, and turn it over. Turn it over is exactly right. I love this question. <laughs> let's exactly. go, let God. <laughs> right? I know that language. <laughs> exactly, right? You just got to yeah. turn it over. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. I, I love that question so much because it really does. It's about release, right? It's about, it's about letting release, go. yeah. It's, it's my favorite question. I always say this, but my favorite answer was when I asked Neil Young this, and he said, when I'm done. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, makes, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it's like, I don't know. I mean, there's certain songs. It's funny. Um, I so 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 in the last waltz oh. um i shall be released which is like one of the greatest all-time you know agreed rock concert documentaries ever agreed. so 
that that particular song i shall be released you know where dylan comes out and jody mitchell and everybody and you know leave on helm and whatever and everyone's out there sometimes actually it's funny when i'm at the point of like maybe like or getting frustrated with something i'm working on or like i'm like stuck on a word or a sentence i will literally play that song when you just said release like that's what it is it's like i'm just like channeling something to just like let me just release it relieve myself of the burden of having to write this thing and i and i will i listen to that song and it's always very inspiring and beautiful and it's a great way to procrastinate by listening to music as well <laughs> isn't so. it though <laughs> that's <It's fast. laughs> that's wow. why I, that's why i listen i listen to a lot of long opera like 10 hours right? you know it's <laughs> a rain. Really? no <laughs> just kidding <laughs> Put on the ring, put on all cycles. I'm gonna, I'm gonna avoid everything for a while. Um, so uh, let me do one last two things real quick. Number one, I want to let me just do this one more time. My impression of Catherine Hepburn on an old golden pond, just got to do it again. You're my knight in shining armor. Pretty good, no? It's really impressive, honestly. Not that good. Really good. Not that good. It's really good. It's I was shaking. I was shaking a little bit when I did that, by the way. <laughs> no, it's um, great. I love it. Appreciate it. And then also, real quick, uh, my Mike Reno impression, just for a heartbeat. Almost paradise. <laughs> oh knocking God. on heaven's door. Great song. Great. Listen, what an absolute joy that you are. My goodness gracious me. So here's the way I like to do these little uh, end of the shows here. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. A little acting involved. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. A little acting involved. I'm going to pretend to hang out very dramatically. And then we're going to have a little postmortem chat. Deal? Um, absolutely. That sounds great. Here we go. Off to the races. Number. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Melina. Melina Saval, Saval, or Savalitz. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Savalinsky. Melina Saval is great. Melina Saval. I'll stick with that one. Thank you so much for doing this. What an absolute hoot it was. And for God's sakes, now I've got almost paradise. That'll be in my head for at least a week. <laughs> so I thank you and I curse you. Your turn. I apologize. Um, maybe think of some really cool, like Bruce Springsteen song or something. I can do that. You know, I can do like, that. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for having me. This has been an absolute joy and a pleasure. And thank you so much. I'm honored and um, for having been asked. And thank you so much. It was great to talk. What a hoot! Hang on a second. <laughs> are, you, are you ready for the dramatic uh, fake hangup? You ready? Yes. Let's do it. Hang on. Bye. Three, Never three. call me again. Done. Bye. Fuck off. Hang on. Click.